Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth, don't. This is Left Unsupervised with Elizabeth Morales, your comedic host that's done it all. Actress, writer, director, producer, headdresser, bartender, beauty pitcher, organizer, rock and roll, PR expert, talent coordinator, bookkeeper, hostess, makeup artist, wife, mother, and general badass. Now listen as she interviews all of her favorite celebrities, doctors, and entrepreneurs that she's met along the way. This week, Elizabeth is left unsupervised with her guest, Farine Butt. So Dana, would you say you have uh, a mind of um, magical thinking or what they call the woo, you know, woo, woo, because of uh, all the, you know, spiritual kind of California thing. I am desperate to be more California. I feel like I still have so much New York in me. I want to be like taken over and washed over by California crystal magic. Okay. Well, <laughs> I am one of those. <laughs> I will convert you. Trust me. Uh, I can't wait. <laughs> so my husband says I have magical thinking. That's what he calls it. I say I am one with the universe. Right. So um, I was sick over the holidays. Oh, no. I know it sucked. I had the ever diet that if you really want to lose weight, hey, listen, I finally lost my baby weight 14 years later. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm always like one stomach flew away from like a goal weight. or Yes. Right. Well, let me tell you, the best diet is that pancreatitis, which is what I got. They don't know how I got it. And I was in the hospital, hadn't eaten for like seven, 10 days, lost 12 pounds. It was crazy. I was ever so trying to be positive. And as I'm sitting in the hospital, you know, feeling sorry for myself, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe day four. I haven't eaten in seven days. And then I hear some guy, I can't believe I've been in here 45 days and it doesn't look like I'm getting out. Then I was like, "Okay, girl, check yourself. Right. So I go home. I'm finally home, relaxed. I go outside, I meditate, I bring my crystals because they bring me such peace and calm. And I come in and I have a full blown, the room starts spinning. I start sweating profusely. Oh my God. Can't feel my arms, so I can't <gasps> move my arms. So I look very calmly to my son and I go, oh, you need to call Dada and tell him to get home and get me a baby aspirin. I think mom was having a heart attack. Yeah, I- not to alarm you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But your mother might be having a heart attack. <laughs> and he's like, oh, my God, I forgot how to do. Oh, what is it? Um, mouth to mouth. What is it? Um, oh, like CPR. CPR, because he studied CPR. He's like, uh, Mama, I don't remember how to do CPR. I'm like, no, it's OK. Just call Dada, tell him to come home and get me a baby aspirin. So I'm like sweating. Room is spinning. Paramedics Good on you for being so cal- – I would have been freaking out. Well, that came later. <laughs> <laughs> You know, remember, I just came in from meditating and I thought I was dying. And so the paramedics and my husband get there at the same time and they start putting all these monitors on me, heart monitors, you know, the blood pressure cuff. And since I was outside meditating, they start to like rip my shirt up and, you know, pull my pants down and bam. My my smoky topaz falls out. <laughs> and then, bam, they move my shirt to stick it under my bra, you know, and my clear quartz falls out. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> These paramedics must have been like, okay, like, let's proceed with caution because rocks are falling out of this woman. <laughs> She's out of her rocks. <laughs> so, so he starts going, ma'am. What's happening? Like, why do you have all these crystals? And I'm like, oh, I was just outside meditating. I have my crystals on. You know, I'm trying to heal my pancreas. <laughs> oh my. 
<laughs> Sidebar, I might be having a heart attack. So. But it might be a heart attack, too. So can you oh please check that out? So he tells me, I think you're having a panic attack. And I'm like, I don't have panic attacks. I don't have them. And so another another crystal falls out. So he looks. My husband is there. Oh, okay, so your husband's home at this he point. He had just gotten time. there. Wow. And he looks at my husband, and he's like, uh, can I talk to you over there? And I was like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> you're having a parent-teacher <laughs> conference with my husband right now. I don't have panic attacks. Right, baby? Tell him. Tell him I don't have panic attacks. <laughs> I meditate. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, I I love the image so much of like like a post meditating woman, like probably like yoga pants, like the nice like top knot hair in a rage. Sweating profusely, sweating. and I had chills. So I was sweating and shaking. <laughs> I am not having a panic attack. <laughs> they, they tell me, "Well, we're not a doctor, but are you sure you want to go to the hospital?" And I'm like, "Yes, something's not right." And I fucking go to the hospital, and lo and behold, I go to change into the hospital gown, <laughs> and yet another crystal <laughs> falls out. <laughs> We're now how many hours into? <laughs> hey, not even one. Not even one. But okay. I had like six crystals all up in you know my bra, my pancreas. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, that's so funny. Hey, I kept them all on the exterior. Okay. Oh, totally. <laughs> A gynecologist appointment somewhere down the line. Hey, people do that. But anyway. <laughs> I digress. Is really the whole point of this was to tell you that Farine, who we have in the studio today, her she works with amazing precious stones, minerals, the vibration of the earth, just um, minerals from meteors. So How cool! So cool! So cool! So anyway, that's my little magic story with my crystals and gemstones or whatever. <laughs> I am dying to hear Farine because let me tell you, she is so cool. I cannot wait. Let's go get her. Today we are channeling our inner virtuoso with Farine, but if that name doesn't ring a bell, it's probably because Farine only works on a highly exclusive basis. She is a world-renowned contemporary artist. Her medium of choice? Precious stones. Her abstract painting have embraced the ancient Japanese and Indian technique, which uses crushed gemstones, minerals, and precious metal-based pigments. Think pure gold and silver, sapphires, rubies, diamonds, onyx, and even minerals derived from meteors. One of Farim's art pieces was actually sold to the Prince of Monaco for millions of dollars. Throughout her life, Farine has traveled the globe, and one of her specialties is landscape, with an emphasis on light, color, and perhaps most interesting, vibration. We are making sure that our chakras are aligned today, folks. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Farine. It's a pleasure to be on. I am so intrigued and so excited to have you on the show. I just want to get into it because I read this beautiful story involving a moth when you were very young. 
what happened to you when you were a child and you saw that moth? Because I think from there, your art, you know, that's what it emanated from, right? Yes. So that memory is actually one of three of my first memories. And I think that's actually the third. I remember I could walk. I remember I could not properly talk. I had these complex thoughts and wanted to communicate, but I realized how limited I was in my ability to communicate because I was a baby. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah, so actually um, there is a quote by Picasso, and it has to do with being an artist. You know, the truest moment of creativity for an artist is when you can express yourself as honestly as you did when you were a child. Oh, yeah. And then on the flip side, he has another quote, um, and specifically it goes, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. Oh, my God. That is so true. That is so true. So it's kind of really interesting, you know. Very profound. Um, well, and you experienced that, and remember, even before you could speak, right, at a very young age. Yes, yeah. So, you know, collectors are drawn to my art for many different reasons. And there are some collectors, they literally walk into the room. They have no plan. You can send them photographs. You can do whatever you do. They're not interested until they walk into the room and they physically see the work. And then they decide which work they want to buy and why they want to buy it. And it has to do with their eye. And it's a very intuitional process. They see a piece where it is your, shall we say, mature refinement of that pure child voice. So, you know, it's the third memory that I remember. The first two, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I could... I couldn't walk, and I definitely couldn't talk. And one involved, uh, you know, being on a train and, you know, being fed baby food. And another had to do with being in a car, and my little tiny flexible little foot got stuck. And anyhow, you know, and everyone was freaking out because they thought, gosh, they crushed me, and I might grow up to be a cripple and everything. And in my mind, I thought, oh, gosh, the adults are... So dramatic. as usual, and my foot is totally <laughs> fine. And so I remember looking at my foot and kind of shaking, you know, shaking it. I remember seeing this plump little foot, you know, and being held and everything. There's definitely a lot of cognitive activity going on, I think, in all children. And we really have to be, you know, uh, aware of that as adults and, and living in a world with children. Children are our future. Getting into the third memory and going back to that honest childlike uh, impetus, for creation. It's definitely an impetus. It's definitely something that comes from deep within and it's like a passion and it, you know, it's explosive and it's like a a force that is almost otherworldly. It's like connecting with your solar plexus, you know, the chakra that handles willpower. You know, I think as a child, you're very in touch with your various chakras and your various impetuses. Unfortunately, number one, the world around you is not always as connected with its own natural flows of, of these sort of impetuses. And number two, you're very limited by your environment and by the preoccupations of the people around you doing what they have to do to essentially care for you in the best that they can. Right. And also adults bring their own fear to that purity as a child. 
that I think sometimes even things that are unexplained as adults, we, we need an explanation. And as a child, you don't. You can take that in and just see it for what it is. And you don't need mm-hmm. this explanation for why you feel this or why you see something. I know I've always been very intuitive as a child, but when you tell people that, it kind of freaks them out a little bit as an adult. The adults always try to turn that off. In my case, I don't think that they turned it off. It's just, it's a limitation. If you have a certain consciousness, that's the consciousness you have. I think that will change in the future generations, certainly. <laughs> I agree. I, I definitely agree. I feel like they're more in tuned. I know my son's only 14, and he's like way more in tune to everything than I was at that age. Oh, yes, absolutely. My daughter actually, you know, for the longest time, she was interested in aeronautical engineering. But to go further, it wasn't just trying to get an engineering degree. She's looking into neuroscience. And when I asked her why, she said, we've finally figured out a way taking, you know, Einstein's theories. And, you know, theories have been around for decades that we haven't done much with. We finally found a way to begin to map the universe. And we've learned so much in that process. And we still haven't found an accurate manner to map the human mind. Wow. And that really, really (laughs) blew me away. How old is she? (laughs) She's 16 now. Oh, my God. From the mouth of babes, I tell you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, our generation, the generations prior, were almost not allowed that freedom of thought. Not that they were not allowed. It's just you need a conscious environment in order for your own consciousness to be able to expand rather than conform. So my first memory, you know, artistic memory, I should say, it was cold outside. We were in California. I remember we rented an apartment in Hayward. It was cold outside, not very cold, because it's a California Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, how cold in California? (laughs) (laughs) And I saw a moth. Now, I'd seen enough moths and understood enough about moths to know that, you know, it's going to go hungry, it's going to go cold. And I was trying to get my mother's attention and trying to let her know, you know, that there's this important situation and I was just very sort of emotionally involved with this little living thing that nobody noticed and so I felt, you know, somehow responsible for its well-being. You know, then my father comes home and I climb up, pull myself up on his pant leg and I'm trying to let him know and he didn't quite get it. So I remember then trying to communicate to them, you know, through a picture, and it was a very rough and rudimentary circle with a very rudimentary diamond shape, and then, you know, of course, a very rudimentary triangle being the moth. Uh, They didn't quite get it, and I, I, I think the moth ended up passing away in the morning. That was my first memory. Now, at that time, you know, my parents didn't really think much of it. They thought, you know, it was kind of interesting, but they didn't think much until I was in kindergarten. And my teachers were adamant that I'll be an artist and that I have sort of visual talent. And then my parents started thinking about it and actually started reading and checking into the cognitive development of a child. I must have been past my first birthday. Yeah. So that, I mean, they were curious then because the level of sort of, say, ability and dexterity uh, was very high. And Were so, they also uh, artists? Actually, my mother wanted to be an artist, but she came from a uh, very sort of, you know, we're talking about like the 60s and 70s right. and not in the United States. You know, we're talking about India and Pakistan. You know, these are third world countries that were even more so. You know, you were lucky if you lived in a, in a section of a city that had electricity and running water. 
and, you know, sewage was not figured out, and it's just a very rustic environment that she came from. She came from a very wealthy family, but it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, if you don't have, society hasn't developed up to a certain level, there's still going to be limitations in, in their understanding. And there were many sort of limitations that were presented to women in in this culture. Expression of beauty, um, expression of of your body, you know, and and that kind of thing. It could take a few generations sometimes, and sometimes it never changes despite appearances changing. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And so, you know, certainly there are the influences of, you know, these sort of more uh, timeless realities Uh, coming into the present day and manifesting in my art today. I find interesting, and I want to get talk a little bit about what exactly it means. Like when you do your artwork, vibration, could you expand a little bit on what that means for you? We need to be paying attention to vibrations. We need to be paying attention not only to getting the um, equation part of a chemical reaction correct, but the vibrational conditions that would cause that chemical reaction. And, you know, it was really interesting. Um, I read a, a lecture by Stephen Hawking, and to put it very simply, when asked about the origins of the universe, what he stated is that it was a multiple series of false starts, almost like, you know, bubbles, like bubbles seething and frothing in chaotic water. The bubbles come up one after the other and they keep popping until one may, you know, get big enough to expand. Even the origins of the universe, you know, has to do beyond and before the subatomic particles existed, there needed to be vibrational conditions that could hold and sustain themselves long enough to become solid matter and so on and so forth. And so, you know, you have various spiritual doctrines and and religious books, uh, you know, talking about, quote-unquote, the days or, you know, referencing time periods and referencing, you know, the first, you know, impetus and the second impetus growing into the third impetus. There's talk of light and sound and, and so on and so forth. These are almost like keys to the complex and immense and, I really believe, infinite algorithms that make our universe possible. Well, right, like the Earth vibration and even... As humans, we all vibrate, right? Because we're all these molecules. We do. We do. And there's certain frequencies that exist on our planet that are parallel to the human heart. There are other frequencies that exist that are parallel to the mind. More popularly, we know of seven chakras. Less popularly, you can go beyond that to 22 chakras. I had but no we, idea. Yeah, but we don't explore that simply because even to attain full sort of conscious opening of the seven chakras is is really quite amazing. <laughs> well, you know, Farine, that leads me to my next question is like, how do you know, um, how do you know what gemstones do you want to use for what pieces? How does that come to you? It is art. I, I try to capture a moment in the algorithms of the universe. Wow. Um that's but, so cool. Uh, I just I just got to take that in for a second. That is so cool. Seriously, because, you know, most people know art, you know, as acrylic or oil or water base, right? And mm-hmm. you use precious stones because I've seen your work and it is stunning. 
And what's beautiful about you. your work is there's not one look. So let's say if you see it in the day, it's it has a certain look. If you see it at night, it kind of looks different. If you have a spotlight on it, it looks different. It has all these different feels at, at different times. Can you explain a little bit like how that process worked for you? You brought back this ancient technique. I discovered it quite by accident. I don't know if, you know, I'd have to get it tested, but I've done a lot of, I mean, formally tested, but I have done a lot of these sort of sophisticated sight color tests to see how much color you can actually see. Right. And the longest one I did had a hundred and more than 150, I think it was 168 different images. I got every single one correct. <gasps> wow. So, you know, I'd have to actually get it researched, but that implies that I may be tetrachromatic. Tetrachromatic. And what is exactly um, what it, does that mean? So it's the condition of possessing four independent channels for conveying color. It's a genetic mutation, essentially. Wow. Oh, my God. That is so, so cool. I'm learning so much with you today. Let me tell you. <laughs> I swear. So you're able to see nine million more colors because wow. of that extra little, you know, I don't remember if it's, a, I think it's a cone. That's crazy. Normally, you would have three cones. I could be incorrect. I think it's normally two to three cones. Right. You know, and a lot of people, one of my collectors, actually, his wife loves the work, and he is always laughing. He's like, she's going on and on about, oh, this purple, it's red, and it turns blue, and it's this, and it's that, and he's... He always just laughs and says, it all looks gray to me. <laughs> well, my husband's colorblind, so that's that's funny. He's He only grays and browns and a lot of muted colors look all the same to him. You know, so my work is very careful in its color choice, especially in the work that is pointillist and where you have gradations of color changing. Uh, because in those gradations, you know, I want to keep it a very even mixture. I don't want to create a stripe or, you know, a cloudiness or, you know, sort of an imbalance in the change of color. So there was a blue that I saw in a painting of the stigmata of St. Raphael at the Metropolitan Museum. It had this blue, this glowy blue, and I needed that blue. And so I looked in the various oil painting companies and tried to find it. I wasn't able to find it. So I spoke to someone in the Metropolitan Museum, and they explained to me that this blue is actually not a paint. This painting has not been restored very much. That blue is the original pigment which going back hundreds of years ago was not a cadmium blue or a Prussian blue or a Winsor Newton, <laughs> you know, blue. <laughs> it's actually a crushed mineral, and that mineral is lapis lazuli. Oh, I love that stone. Now, but, which means the stone, even at a finite granular level, the particle is not reflective of color. It's refractive of light, which passes oh. the color contained in within. <sighs> That's why the blue looks glowy blue. Oh, so, my God. You know, I went online. I looked for lapis lazuli. I found it, and I used it in the painting. And that opened up a Pandora's box. Then it's like you can go after minerals that are shimmery, minerals that you would never guess are minerals. They are dead in color, you know, very much like paint. Right. But the beautiful thing about them is that they have a greater color variance and a greater reactivity to light. So they may not sparkle or shimmer. It's a, a really sort of lovely kind of an application. And, and then I started using cut gems, you know, getting numerology and such involved as well, which, you know, that little discovery of the lapis lazuli literally opened up 
like a limitless Pandora's box. Do certain stones give you certain feeling or do is it based on each piece that you do? Like how do you decide if you're going to use diamonds or, or rubies? Is that something that you just let it just goes through you or is that, do you think well, about it a, beforehand? It's a balance between an aesthetic decision. Right. And a energy decision. Okay. So, you know, we like to think what we think, you know, about whether gems and minerals actually have an intrinsic vibrational quality or not. There's been many studies done on it. It hasn't been proven enough that one can say, you know, cite 10 scientific journals. But I will say this, the Natural History Museum in New York is one of the most extensive gem and mineral collections in the United States. It's a public display of a much larger private collection, which was owned by J.P. Morgan, I believe still maybe, and the Tiffany family. And they hired a curator that was a little bit off the wall. They didn't hire someone buttoned up that you would expect servicing families of that level at the time right. that they did. They hired a guy who for decades, uh, he's German, uh, named Kunst, for decades just traveled the world and studied different cultures and their relationship to gems and minerals and their individual, numerological, and then as a collective consciousness of society, their beliefs of the vibrational and energetic sort of applications to the gems and to minerals. That's very telling. There's definitely something there if, you know, the founders of one of the main four banks in the United States, very ensconced with with the Federal Reserve, is taking that direction, taking the time and energy and capital and allocating it to creating such an extensive collection in conjunction with you know, another esteemed family such as the Tiffany family, which founded uh, Tiffany & Co. Well, you know, I am a believer because I have this whole collection of different crystals that give me different feelings. I meditate with certain crystals, um, certain stones. So I am a true, true believer. I am as well. (laughs) Yes, in that. Um, I want to play a little game, but before I go there, I want to ask you, what is the most expensive piece that you have sold? So the most expensive piece, I'm not allowed to publicly disclose the price. There is some public information on it. I was allowed to release enough public information so that people understand the pieces there. Right. But as you go kind of higher and higher in certain circles, it becomes very easy to find out, you know, what's the piece, where is it, and who owns it. And the owner just doesn't want people to know know, their stuff. (laughs) Right. But I will say that it was over a million dollars, specifically over two million. It involved a lot of cut gemstones. What gemstones did you use for that um, piece? You... The, the, the most dominant stone is, is cut yellow diamond. <gasps> wow. The canary, it's, it's right? Really canary impressive. diamond called canary, canary yellow? Canary, yes. Yes. Yep. I love that. Well, Farine, let me tell you, you have schooled me today and have (laughs) opened me up to so many other ideas and ways of thinking and looking at art. From the day that I met you and I I saw your piece, I was just like, I got to have her on the show. You know, I just (laughs) I find you so refreshing and your your stuff is just amazing. I'm so grateful that you came on the show today and really were able to open people up more to information that you don't hear. 
And now we want to play a little game with you. Now it's time for the part of the show where we play Love It or Leave It. It's a simple question, really. Do you love it or would you leave it? With the host of the game, Tessa Barrera. So we're going to start with something that we hear all the time in art, the term priceless, you know, priceless works of art. Everything does have a price. So what is your opinion on the term priceless? Love it or leave it and why? Can we choose both? (laughs) (laughs) You have to explain. Priceless works of art. Is that a real thing? (laughs) I think it is a real thing for sure. You know, there are some works that you would never, it would almost be an insult to begin to attempt uh, to place a price over it. Rare diamonds and rare gemstones, I think it would just be an insult to the fact that it exists and somehow reality has caused this creation to be manifest and present in our physical world and move beyond civilizations and move through civilizations and and societies and, and, and the rise and fall of, of many sort of iterations of, of humanity. And, and I think that's what priceless really means. Whatever a gallery or dealer may tell you, that's up to them. But I think that, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So that's so that's a love it. So that's a love True. it. You got to say it. Yes, love it a million percent. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to love it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> Forcing her to say it. Okay. Another thing uh, that I'm unsure of now: teaching art. I want to make the disclaimer that I absolutely adored my high school art teacher, Mr. Moltz, but I still suck at drawing. So teaching art. <laughs> Can you teach art? Love it or leave it? I love it. And I actually did teach art for two years in the New York City public school system. Wow. And when I got the job, I didn't know what I was getting into. And the board said, you can go here, you get paid 40000 You go here, you get paid, I don't know, sixty or whatever it was. Of course, I, I went for the higher number, thinking all kids are the same and all schools are the same. This was a school where guns would be pulled out quite regularly. Most of the population was going in and out of juvenile detention. Definitely a world that I was not. I mean, I knew it was there, but I knew it through, like, that Michelle Pfeiffer movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dangerous <laughs> Minds. You know? yeah. And so, actually, art became, it wasn't about how good you can draw. It became about creative thinking and exercising your creative thinking to overcome your challenges in reading and writing and expressing yourself and then finding a place for yourself in society, which is so important for these marginalized sections of society. And just talk about the art. Talk about what your heart tells you about the art. Use your voice. Very nice. And behave yourself. You know, art, for art's sake, to create a piece or a physical item is wonderful. And if, if that's what your heart desires, do it. But more importantly, it exercises creative thinking. So I think that's a renown. She loves it. What do you think, yeah, that's, I think, that's a, I, think <laughs> I love it. it. That's great. And who would know these kids there have isn't this enough amazing of it. Yeah. artist at their disposal? Well, okay, this is the last one. And this is this is a saying that I actually really like, but it's pretty cheesy. So <laughs> you have to tell me, love it or leave it. The saying is, earth without art is just eh. <laughs> <laughs> So, and we actually had a visual for you. We had a visual on a paper, like you take the art out of the earth, and it's just, eh. <laughs> I would agree, and I would disagree. I think that natural creation and, you know, whoever created this divinely perfect place that we live in is just 
another kind of an intelligence. So in that way, I would disagree, but I would agree in that we have such beautiful and, and great pieces of art and expressions of civilization for like tens of thousands of years, from like cave paintings to the hieroglyphs, you know, you question the true uh, purpose of the pyramids. You see these unique little images of, you know, these saucer-like shapes. And uh, there's societies and civilizations that came thousands of years before us, and you can see the evidence of their advanced knowledge and intelligence in their art, in their public art. Right, right. <laughs> and I think we really need to step up our game. That sounds like... You got all the questions, Zarina. Thank you so much for playing the game with us, and I cannot wait for everyone to hear this episode. I know. Yeah. Freen, if you could tell people where they can find you, plug in any of your social media or where they could see your artwork. So at the moment, I have a website, com, and my contact details are there. And I usually, you know, just sort of personally entertain questions about seeing the works. I do have a showroom as well, which if someone is interested in, in taking a visit and we're setting up an appointment, you're welcome to. Okay, so that's www.fareenbutt.com. That's right. One last question before we wrap up this interview. I ask this question to everybody that comes on the show. If you could be left okay. unsupervised anywhere, where would it be <laughs> and why? <laughs> That's a really good question. That's not one I've asked myself recently, so I have to think about it a little bit. <laughs> unsupervised. There's many possibilities, right? Yeah, there are. Well, what would I do if I'm unsupervised? I'm kind of un- have been unsupervised most of my life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you'd just be you. <laughs> what I would like to do if I was unsupervised, let's say I could like put on an invisibility cloak so you're like totally immune, right? Oh, I love this answer. Like one of those little Harry Potter things? Uh-huh. I would sneak on to Richard Branson's little, he's got this space shuttle kind of a thing, and he takes people up into space every now and again. And I would just sneak onto one of those at a moment that somehow was astrologically significant. That's what I would do if I was... Oh, my God, I love that answer! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, That's what I would do. Thank you so much for doing this interview and taking um, time out of your busy day to call in. And I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for listening to Left Unsupervised. Don't forget to stalk us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Left Unsupervised Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.